0: Knowing the headlines isn't always enough Sometimes you need to talk about it For stimulating conversation on the day's hot topics This is your station This is your show The Ryan Jesperson Show On 630 Chad Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station Hard to believe we're already into the final broadcast hour of the week on this show. As you know, if you tune in on the regular, that means it's time for our Friday morning roundtable. And I'm very excited, been looking forward to catching up with these two for quite some time. Back by popular demand, following her recent appearance on the show, in which we discussed a case you've been covering for a long time. uh, Of course, the case of, of, of the McCann's and Travis Vader. Jana Pruden, a former Crime Bureau chief at the Edmonton Journal good to have you back. It's so great to be here. I hinted uh, as you were leaving us that we might have to bring you back and our text line blew up. People were saying, you better, you better. (laughs) We're going to hold you to it. So thanks for agreeing to come back for maybe a more in-depth conversation though. We're going to cover a lot of ground today.
1: Well, thanks for having me and thanks for those mystery people that sent those texts it was probably my mom and maybe my uncle but I appreciate it they
0: didn't sign off come <laughs> okay. to think of it nobody signed off as Mrs. P or Uncle P or anything like that uh, a good friend of yours in studio with us as well Stephanie Coombs it's great to see you
2: yes nice to see you Ryan
0: I asked you about 30 seconds ago how should I introduce you and you just yeah. started laughing
2: yeah uh former managing editor of the Edmonton Journal would probably work.
0: <laughs> Is it too soon to ask what you're doing now?
2: Um I'm relaxing, honestly. Yeah, relaxing. Yeah, the dust Hang
0: hasn't even really settled yet since the big change job.
2: No, certainly not. Um so and been going out for a lot of coffee with uh people that we, you know, that I worked with for many years that actually, you know, you don't often get to do that, right? Have sit down and have conversations. So that's been a lot of fun. So I'm really doing a lot of just taking time for me.
0: Mm. We we never do that, do we? No. Or, or maybe sometimes we find that we need to force ourselves to do it.
2: Someone we, forced we, me to do yeah. it.
0: <laughs> oh, that was kind of, I, I have my foot in my mouth about a, a minute and a half into this segment. You had, you had an involuntary time to yourself, but it means that you can join us here today.
2: Yes, more than happy to be here.
0: I, I thought it would make sense, to, uh, the two of you longtime journalists, to kick off with the question... Who is a journalist these days? We spent a lot of time this week, and not just us, talking about access to the legislature, specifically in the context of conservative website The Rebel, and the fact that the the government, our provincial government, had made an attempt to ban rebel correspondents, saying that they are, quote, not journalists. Now, of course, it brought some unlikely supporters to the forefront, including me, those saying that, hey, listen, they do deserve access, whether or not we agree with the message. What's both of your take on this?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting topic, and I remember it coming up you know, ten years ago, a dozen years ago when blogs were really on the rise that suddenly journalists started to get very possessive of, well, what about if a blogger wants to come and cover something? Actually, it didn't really happen and we found that most bloggers, certainly I found as a court reporter, most bloggers were just taking my work and then writing a blog about it, they didn't actually feel the need to sit in court for several days. Um, But obviously that's changed and we have a lot of interesting alternative media sources springing up and, you know, I joined the chorus, believing that it is in an open system, in a a democracy, there should be room for all of these voices. I think what's really interesting to me is, of course, uh, Ezra Levant has been, um, I think it's fair to say, quite negative about the media, (laughs) often calling them the media party. And here we saw the media party, many of whom don't have really positive feelings in return, um, really standing up for this principle that they believe in. And I I was thinking about just this morning, I wonder if Ezra Levant, if that means anything to him, if that has changed his view at all, to see that the people that he often is so negative about actually came to his... Defense And really, I think Jason Marksoff uh, described it in McLean's as sort of building a circle around him. And that, that is yeah. truly what happened. And it was really
2: interesting to see. And I think it was the right thing. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly interesting, the idea that the government wanted to, I- to identify who was the media. And I think that's perhaps why, you know, many of our colleagues sort of got together and said, well, no, that's not your job to decide who is the media because, um, you know, journalists don't necessarily like it when the government just decides things so you know i think that's certainly part of it that journalists want to have a say i think in in deciding who is in the clan i guess um you know i kind of feel for feel for the government i think they you know i do think they made a mistake on this but i understand the logistics of it if you you know we have a press gallery at the legislature and um it sort of governs itself um in terms of allowing people to have office space at the legislature and that sort of thing. But you don't have to be a member of the press gallery to go to a legislature press conference. So if you open it up and say all the press conferences are open to anyone, um, I think that they logistically would become somewhat difficult to deal with. I don't know. Maybe no one would go. You know, I don't know how many people are that interested, but you could get them stacked, you know, really kind of stacked with public interest groups. Um, You could get them stacked with people that really do have an agenda to grind. And the purpose of those press conferences is not for someone in the audience to have an agenda. It is for and to, you know, to have that as their platform. It's for people to ask questions of the government. So, you know. I don't know. In
0: other words, you fear that a news conference, uh, maybe fear is not the right word, but but the the potential is that a news conference could just turn into another version of question, period.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's something that um, they're going to have to consider. So Heather Boyd, who um, used to work at the Journal a long time ago and was the uh, Western Canadian Bureau Chief for the Canadian Press, has been asked by the government to investigate this issue and to come forward with maybe some suggestions on how they could fix it or how, what rules there might be. And and I don't envy her that job. I mean, I think that's going to be very difficult.
0: Yeah, I mean, what do you forecast she's going to find? She's on the clock. They said two to three weeks from now they're going to expect a report from her. Some people have suggested that's what the government forecasts it's going to take for this story to blow over, though I suspect that's not, not the case. Not with Ezra event.
2: Nothing blows over no. with this <laughs> No. <laughs>
1: you know, I think Stephanie raises a really good point. And, of course, any of us who've covered public meetings, you certainly see Occasions where, say, a public forum that's intended for the public to ask questions can become hijacked by uh, someone that comes with a very specific agenda, yep. who has, uh, you know, is not just there, sort of in the spirit of fair play to ask questions and get their information, but to to really hijack the proceedings, and that that would be very problematic in a in a press conference I mean to me I don't know why anyone wants to go to a political press conference but uh, well, yeah to reporting. me
0: I mean it's it's almost like you know I mean I saw uh, Jen Gerson who I, who I appreciate her commentary on social media as well uh, she, she uh, the correspondent for the National Post right yep. she she had responded to someone who had said someone was critical of, of this and critical of of the media party jumping to the rebels defense here saying okay so well I'm just gonna go ahead and, and set up my own website And I've got a few thousand Twitter followers. So now I guess I'm a journalist. So I'm going to be at the news conferences. And Jen said, great. (laughs) And I kind of think, you know what? I mean, if if we're indicating that there might be uh, more of an interest in politics and more people might be showing up and more people might be discussing what's going on down at the Alberta legislature, which obviously includes policy and initiatives that affect all Albertans, then. Great, but you, 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 There's kind of like this sliding scale where you either go. I mean, on one hand, it was suggested that all web-based platforms would be banned from news conferences. Okay, okay well, hang on. So, so then that includes the rebels. So the rebels out, but then that also includes you know Buzzfeed and it includes iPolitics and it includes Vice and it includes all of these other groups that offer legitimate, sure, somewhat biased or influenced political commentary, but political commentary nonetheless, and. I don't need to tell the two of you that the way that media is moving, pretty soon, almost everybody or most everybody will be web-based. So, so it's not. I don't think you can draw black yeah. and white uh, definitions of who gains access.
1: Absolutely not. I mean that that's a very antiquated way of looking at it. I think there's a time in the not too distant future when. Most publications, maybe all publications, will not be on paper, and I I don't think that's a bad thing. Paper is not the the um, arbiter of legitimacy or not legitimacy. I mean, there's plenty of print publications that are not legitimate publications, <laughs> and you could easily get around something like that too. So you make a uh, you make a new, newsletter and you photocopy it ten times your print publication. So that's that's obviously a totally arbitrary rule, and you know. Getting back to sort of problems that can be caused in a press conference, occasionally you have a reporter that does that themselves. They've got a specific issue they're going after, and it's not the the intended purpose of the press conference. And generally, the handlers are pretty good at, at dealing with that. And there's I've been in press conferences where that's been a potential, and the, the handler has said, OK, we're going to take one question from each person. We'll go in a circle until the questions are done or until – so it's not always – The best way, but I do think that these things even out eventually. And once you're in the media party, you know,
2: someone walks over with hors d'oeuvres, eventually you might take one. (laughs) And it's funny because you say, you know, digital products and digital media, and, you know, you've seen in Quebec La Presse, which is the um, biggest French media um, newspaper, which is now no longer a newspaper in Canada, and they are only publishing digitally. So if this were Quebec, you would be saying, you know, one of the well, the biggest—it's that they have the biggest newsroom in Quebec, um, and you would be saying they couldn't come in. So, I mean, as as the media landscape changes, it's certainly something that does need to be addressed. I don't think there's a, going to be an easy answer. Um, you know, I don't, and I don't think any, everyone's going to be pleased. <laughs> you know, there's I, uh, there's not a simple answer to it, but it's it certainly. It's certainly been fun watching it. It Yeah.
0: Paula Simons tweeted, we don't license journalists in a free country. We don't let the state or a regulatory agency decide who is or isn't a real journalist. This was, let's be honest, a non-story until the rebels started showing up and the NDP took issue with it. And the optics of this are simply that the NDP wanted to shut out an agency that was perpetually critical of them. I mean, that's essentially what this boils down to. People suggesting that all of a sudden now everybody's going to be trying to gain access to these news conferences and government lockups and the and the legislature is going to be flooded with, with fly-by-night correspondents and their illegitimate blogs and websites. I mean, it, I think it's ludicrous because if that was the case, being that there was no policy in place previously and being that generally speaking, per Darcy Henton's words, the president of the the press gallery, it was pretty inclusive policy-wise. This already would have been an issue were it going to be one
1: yeah you know and the idea of sort of what makes a journalist and and licensing and of course sometimes um, accountability you know there's no standards no sort of formal standards for this profession and that's been discussed quite a bit of you know should there be a code of ethics or a code of conduct that people adhere to I went to art school so I didn't become a journalist till the first day that I started working at a newspaper um, but you know I did become a journalist on that day so what the switch? Is that I had a job? Is it that I started writing things down? I Is it that I was willing to go and put time into press conferences? I I think those are interesting questions and I don't think the answers are easy by any means.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, to, to sort of swerve off and, and throw a completely different example into the mix, I, I remember when Amanda Lintout was, was was kidnapped in Somalia and people started saying, oh, she's not a real journalist because she's there as an independent or she's there as a freelancer. I mean, it, it, it got the conversation started then as well. Uh, who is a real journalist? I mean, what constitutes or what defines a journalist?
2: And I think Jana pointed out, you know, many years ago, this sort of started to happen with, I think, mainstream journalists worrying that their territory was being eroded and worrying that they would be losing jobs and would not be as relevant, which mm, <laughs> as, things have, as things have progressed, certainly, you know, the, lands, the media landscape has changed. Um, but, it, you know, so, uh, you know, this is one case, Ezra Levant, Amanda Lindhout is another case. It, it's certainly people saying, um, you know, you're, you're encroaching on on my job and I think a lot of it is defensive Mm. and I think that um you know it is interesting that people have jumped to Ezra Levant's defense given that he is not well liked in the in the news community (laughs) at all and um you know but that the principle I guess of you know you know, I don't like your opinion, but I believe that you should have the, you know, you should be able to say it. That seems to have trumped this defensiveness amongst journalists, which is fairly interesting.
0: Yeah, I think so as well.
1: I can't even count how many tweets I saw or how many people said to me, you know... I can't believe I'm doing this, but I completely agree with Ezra Levant. Like, And that's, uh, it brought a lot of people around full circle. I'm, yeah,
0: I mean, it's been fascinating yeah. for me. I mean, for me to be sitting here talking about the rebel. I mean, a caller called in like a month ago and just wanted to start championing the rebel. And I just cut the call off without apology. Like, I was like, you gotta be kidding me, right? And then people say, well, why don't you have more people from the rebel on? And, and I have the odd time. Brian Lilly came on to talk about something once and Lauren Southern came in to talk about something once. I mean, here we're giving them, 15 minutes of of, of mentions and airtime. The fact of the matter is, I don't sweat the rebel, but it is a competing news outlet in a sense. I mean, if you can call it a news outlet, I don't have as much of an agenda as the rebel has. But at the same time, I defend their right to get a message out, I defend people's rights to speak what they believe. And I also wonder if there might be something to the assertion that some of the columnists, some of the, if you want to call them, opinion journalists that may not agree with Ezra Levant or Sheila Gunn Reid or whoever, but yet jump to their defense, may also be looking to protect their own access <laughs> yep. months or years down the road.
2: And that's certainly something that has always happened. I mean, you know, you could go through any newsroom and, um, I, and ask them if, you know, they've written something that has angered someone else and then, you know, been denied access for something. It has happened, and Graham Thompson had a column in the journal that, in which he argued that Ralph Klein was unhappy with him about something, and then he stopped getting, he was stopped being able to ask Ralph Klein questions at press conferences. They wouldn't take his questions. Um, you know, opinion journalists are on a, have a different road to go down than uh, reporters, necessarily. Although that does happen with reporters. You ask questions and they get You know, this cabinet minister, this politician, whomever it is, celebrity, whatever, they get angry at the questions you're asking and they refuse to take your questions. So there is certainly something to be said about, you know, that the opinion journalists, of course, want to make sure, you know, if Ezra's allowed in, well then, you know... There's not as many people that are as
0: but are some of the best Ezra. are some of the best journalists the most unpopular ones for that exact reason they're asking the toughest questions they're unearthing the most significant stories
2: i I think so what I would say though is I think Ezra has a spotty history in in terms of uh, accuracy and, um,
0: and I'm not talking specifically yeah. in the context of him i yeah. even with Graham and, and Ralph Klein or whatever the case may be I mean sometimes the journalists that really Bush people are the ones that are most disliked.
2: And they get, you know, they get, often get the best stories. But it is a, you know, it is a fine line. You are out there asking questions and people have to answer them. So, you know, in order to do your job, people need to answer your questions in some way. You can't, it's difficult to write a column or a story that is entirely no comment. You know, if you don't have people, so there is a lot of you know, working to get people to respect you for the work you do, um, you know, that they may not agree with your opinion, but they respect that you ask questions in, in a manner that is, I used respect about five times in that sentence, but is respectful.
0: It's okay. You're setting the tone. <laughs> listener here says, you don't have an agenda, Ryan. You must be kidding. You want a list? <laughs> yes, I do. Go ahead and text it at the 630 There's a lot of comments here on media bias. That's where we'll go with Jana Pruden and Stephanie Coombs right after this. You're listening to The Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chat, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. Janet Pruden, Stephanie Coombs in Studio Brent says, wow, a lot of media covering the media. It seems a little self-serving. The two of you are absolved of that.
2: <laughs> yeah, we're no longer in the media. Your
0: former media, <laughs> your, your independent commentators. Uh, a lot of people uh, sort of shots across the bow here on the text line. Uh, one asserts there are no journalists left except for independents. Nothing but talking heads back. The agenda set by producers who have a directive from special interests Another says I found your comment interesting when you said biased reporters all reporters are biased And then some have suggested that the Edmonton Journal is right up at the top of the list What's your take on bias in media?
1: Well, so you hear it most about political coverage and I feel like I can speak to this quite objectively because I have done almost no political reporting in my career and it's, it's really interesting to watch that you'll, you'll have a story and there's this huge response, you know, oh, the journal is obviously so left-wing, and then sometimes the response is, oh, the journal is so right-wing, and often it's on the same story. And I always think that's a sign of real balance when people are accusing you of both things. Um, so throughout my career, I have known very closely, many political reporters, very dedicated political reporters, you know, off the record, outside of work, over drinks. And I can tell you, I, I don't think I could guess who any of them would vote for. Hmm. Frankly, they're often sort of misanthropes who don't really like either side or don't like the politics of either side, and who love to question every side. Um, so, you As well as I know these people and people I've worked with for, you know, years, and I could tell you so much more about their lives, I couldn't tell you who they voted for. So when I hear that, you know, I think of it during the, the last elections, watching how our political reporters covered the the time leading up to the election so strongly, so fairly, asking really tough questions of both sides, really seeking to hold all sides accountable. And then I would find it frustrating to see these accusations that there's bias and there's an agenda. And then, of course, having mandated... Editorial supporting one side, you know, in a way that 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 sometimes throws all this reporting work out the window when really the two have no connection to each other whatsoever.
2: Yeah, and I think that, you know, I think in within the industry, there is a lot of understanding that the editorials and columns are very separate than news coverage. And but I think that that it, the understanding maybe is not there in the public. Um, maybe because they're not in a newsroom, they don't know necessarily how a newsroom is organized. So, you know, that that those two things are very separate. That as the managing editor, I wasn't involved in making decisions about the editorials because I was um, busy managing the reporters. And so um, there, there really is a separation um, in the way we set ourselves up and the way we handle stories. And I know that's not always clear to the public. And I know that... Um, I know that it can be easy to read into things what you want to see in them. And so that goes to Jana's point, which is very frequently we would be accused in the same breath of, you know, one person, one letter to the editor says we're, you know, two left, and one edit- letter to the editor says we're two right. And, and that happened very frequently. And like Jana said, that's where I would take it to say, well, if I'm getting heat on both sides, um, I feel like that maybe we're coming up somewhere in the middle.
0: Mm-hmm. I, someone uh, quite some time ago, I guess maybe about a month ago or so, tweeted at me. They said, I've listened to your show just for a few days, and, and your bias against the Wild Rose Party is very evident. And all I could think of to respond was that I'm biased against everybody. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of the mandate of the show. I want listeners of this show and, and just as much as you would probably want readers of your work, wherever that work was published to believe that you were giving fair uh, insightful interviews that were that were that were uh, critical to a gr- to a degree that would be justifiable based on what you were attempting to discover. Mm-hmm. right? In other words, you're going to interview somebody uh, based on the exact same set of standards as the interview before them and the next interview to come. And whether that person is, is an elected politician or a uh, representative of the CEO of a company or a special interest group, whatever the case may be, nobody comes on the show or nobody speaks to a print reporter and gets a free ride. And as long as that's the mandate, I kind of think that's how we govern ourselves. We'll get into this a little bit more with Janet Pruden and Stephanie Coombs. And then we'll move on. Their take on Northland's big plan and competition for Uber and how cabbies are keeping up. And Hey, wherever else this Friday roundtable goes, here are the headlines. Our guests in this Friday roundtable: Jana Pruden, Stephanie Coombs. Jana, of course, the former Crime Bureau chief at the Edmonton Journal. Stephanie, former managing editor. Ziffle Pig to the text line at six thirty. Six thirty is not one of the greatest names. That's good. Ziffle Pig uh, says That's
1: Arnold Ziffle, right? It, from from the show was Jaja Gabor. The pig's name was Arnold Ziffle. Wow! Yeah.
0: Well done.
1: Thank you. Very I don't know impressed. why I know that, <laughs> but I know that.
0: I won't even fact check it. <laughs> <laughs> Ziffle Pig wonders uh, says opinion journalist. I- is isn't that an oxymoron? Can someone be an opinion journalist? Yes. I think so.
2: I think so. I mean, I think if you were saying opinion news reporter, mm. that would be an oxymoron. Um but I think someone can still be a journalist. Um, you know, they are in journalism, asking questions, uh, writing stories, or, um, you know, appearing on um, on shows, advocating an opinion. You can still be a journalist to do the research. It's that at the end of your research, and the end of your interviews, you come to an opinion that you write where, uh, or you say, whereas a news reporter um, will not come to that opinion at the end. They will... You know, they will very much attempt to write an objective story that ba- shows balance on both sides. Hmm. I mean, you well, see that right now, even with sort of personal journalism,
1: where people are interested in sharing personal stories. So um, I had, uh, I sent out a newsletter, I sent one out today with some stories that some of my friends have written recently, including a woman who wrote about uh, experiencing miscarriage and a person who who wrote about uh, being in relationships when you have bipolar. And so these are people who are exploring this as a broader issue, but they're using their own experience. So it's but you know that's not a matter of bias, but it certainly is a matter of that's a personal story, but it, it's also reported so it's it's personal journalism, and I think the the reader is very aware of that when when they come to the story. I think that's a big part of it when you read something and can tell sort of that it's intended to be objective news reporting is much different from coming to something where someone's saying, this is my personal experience, maybe here's some science about it, here's other people's experience, but, you know, it's very transparent that it's a different kind of recounting of a story than a traditional news story.
0: Well, I mean, I think of even some of the topics that that we got onto in the first couple of hours of this show today, and you could read something from someone's personal perspective and someone entirely opposite to that and both could be factually correct Mm -hmm. I mean if we talk about say for example the government of Alberta looking to implement you know a new inclusive policy for LGBT students in all 61 school boards you could talk to a, a, a transgender individual you could talk to a Catholic bishop both of them could be writing from their personal perspective and their personal experience both of them could be citing facts and statistics neither could be necessarily wrong Though both perspectives would be entirely polar opposites, now, that doesn't mean that they're incorrect. People just need to consider the source and, and and in that digest what information they're they're receiving.
2: And I think in journalism, it's important for opinion or commentary to be labeled as such, or so that, or that you know, in some way readers or viewers or listeners are aware that this is a column or an opinion piece. Um, I think that's important because I think you want to be upfront about that. I I don't think you want to hide that something's an opinion. I think opinion journalism is very important. I think it has a strong a strong role to play. I just think it needs to be labeled as such so that people know.
0: Yeah, a listener here says, maybe I'm stuck in the past, but journalism to me is just the five W's, who, what, when, where, why. You know, anything else is storytelling or editorializing. And this is where I think uh, that conversation happens. Uh, the difference between a reporter... And a journalist. Many people said, and this was the position of the government of Alberta, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, in recent commentary, that Ezra Levant testified under oath that he is not a journalist. And and he said, uh-uh, I said I'm not a reporter. Right. And there's a big difference there. And there is.
2: And there is. You know, so using our experience at the Edmonton Journal, that would be saying that Graham Thompson, Paula Simons, uh, Gary Lamphere, David Staples, that these people who are paid to have an opinion every day, that they're not journalists. And they very much are journalists. They approach their work in the very same way that uh, reporters do. They research and they interview, and at the end, they come up with an opinion. Um, and often, they are at differing opinions. Um, I did see that Dan Barnes thinks the Northlands thing is really good, and Paul Simons thinks it's really bad. And, and those were both published in the journal. So, you know, I, I think they foster a debate that may not otherwise have appeared by just running a regular news story.
0: All right, Stephanie, you teed it up for us. When we come right, back, Steph- I'm, I want to get into that Northlands plan and see what the two of yours take on it is. Uh, by the way, Ziffle Pig has texted back in, says, "Jana, you nailed it.
3: Oh, <laughs> Jan- Very well done. We'll be right
0: back. Stephanie Coombs, Janna Pruden on 630Chad. You're listening to The Ryan Jesperson Show on 630Chad, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. Stephanie Coombs, Jenna Pruden, our guests in this edition of the Friday round table. We heard it live on these airwaves just a short time ago, the grand plans for Northland's reinvention. We've talked about how it means the demise of horse racing in the city of Edmonton, at least for now, it's a plan worth about $170 million. It includes a $45 million investment in an urban festival facility. That'll replace the racetrack. You're already laughing. They say it can accommodate from 90 to 140,000 people. So you're talking like a, I guess, like a rock in Rio or like a Coachella type venue. Uh, it also includes a, a, a reinvention of, of uh, the Edmonton Expo Center for a concert venue that could accommodate up to 5,000 people and about an $85 million for now retrofit of Rexall Place that could lead to some community rinks etc. Uh, your former colleague Paula Simons has said that this is not a Uh, She said it's a fantasy, not a plan. What's your take on this?
2: Well, I think that, you know, I think parts of it are good. I think certainly it's a facility that has excellent access with the LRT, um, great, like tons of parking, all that kind of stuff. So if we can repurpose it into something that works for Edmonton. That is fabulous, as opposed to just tearing it down. So I don't have any children, but I understand from all my friends who do that getting ice time is difficult in Edmonton. Um, and so if they're going to put in eight new hockey rinks that could be a scene for a uh, place for tournaments and that sort of thing, that seems and, – and most people seem to say that seems to be a good price. I actually really million. like that idea. Yeah, like I think – and then there's all the parking for people who need to go or you can take the LRT there. It's well-serviced for people. A bunch of people to get there. Um, so I like that idea. I think that, you know, you want to take advantage of the Expo Centre still being there. I think you don't want to just abandon that conference facility. So if they can invest in it to make it better, great. But, you know, you said we were laughing when you talked about the festival site. I guess I just, I'm not sure. I mean, festivals are one of my favourite things about Edmonton, full stop. I love them. But I don't know. There's only one I know that attracts that many people, and that's the Heritage Festival. And I don't think that they have any plans to move out of um, out of Horlock Park. And that's only three three days a year. So, what? I'm not, I'm unclear. You know, like if the Rolling Stones toured every year, great. Maybe they get 150,000 people who'd go. Maybe. Maybe. But they and already maybe... have. But we already have Commonwealth Stadium, which seats 65,000 people in an outside concert. So you're not creating another venue that offers something different. You're just, it's just more people, I think. Like, I I don't really understand. Already there are very few outdoor concerts at Commonwealth Stadium every year, a couple. So, is there a, not a demand for them? Is it not convenient because the Eskimos are playing? I'm not sure of those parts.
0: And one of the things too is it's it's not that they're saying we're going to spend 45 million dollars to put shovels in the ground and break ground on an urban festival facility. They're doing it at the expense of the racetrack. They're they're doing. I mean, it, it means the demise of horse racing in Alberta, which has also prompted another question, which is is horse racing a sport on the, i mean is is attention and interest increasing, or is it a sport on the on the decline and, and it's one of those things where I wish people could see your facial expressions right now why don 't you elaborate on the look you just gave me jana
1: well i just have I have no idea i mean i'm I'm not a sports person and i'm not a gambler, so those are i i've I've been to the races once i think, with my grandpa when I was a child. And uh, I Matthew
0: have- Panasiuk, who's running the board today, Matthew, what did you say to me just before these two joined us in studio? Your take on the horse racing debate? Well, what I was saying is that nobody was really talking about it before before this whole uh, thing happened, right? And all of a sudden, that, that now that horse racing is going to be gone, everybody's freaking out, oh, horse racing is gone. Well, I really like horse racing, but really, did anybody really go? Yeah, it's the same thing we were saying about the Edmonton Rush. I mean, like, you know, their last game, which happened to be the game, the game that they won the NLL championship for the first time in franchise history, they had like 15,000 people there. Everyone lamenting the loss of the NLL champion Edmonton Rush, and it was kind of like, well, where were you all before you yeah. Know? So I I can't quite put a finger on the horse racing thing myself. We read several emails from people. We had we had like a dozen emails this morning from passionate supporters of horse racing. But it hasn't been part of the conversation leading up to now.
2: And what's interesting to me I think is that, you know, I sort of judge things based on reader reaction that I got yeah. in the newspaper. And I mean it certainly is a is a somewhat of a good barometer. And I think when we um when we made a change to the puzzles, I had hundreds of people calling and emailing me. When we cut back on putting uh, horse racing in our stats pages in sports, we had maybe a dozen people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and it's that was for, you know, staffing issues and all sorts of stuff, but also space, the relevance. Did We we didn't feel that um, the horse racing necessarily was that relevant, so we cut it back, and we didn't get too much of a backlash. Certainly there are people, and it seems to me to be a, a small core group of people who are really supporting it. But my understanding is that it's not really financially viable, and if it's if that's not happening, then... Than the city then the city's taxpayers are supporting it
0: we've been trying to sift through the numbers and make sense and it depends on who you talk to <laughs> As it uh, always does. <laughs> when when you talk to one side of this horse racing gets a 30 million dollar subsidy every year from the province when you talk to the supporters of horse racing they point out that this is revenue generated from gambling and 30 million dollars of the gambling revenue is sent back into horse racing essentially returning the money that it generated in the first place so I mean you can make your own decisions on that some people have pointed out that Northland's parking is going to have to get less expensive if you're going to seriously encourage minor hockey and ice times to actually flourish there. And here's an interesting point on the text line as well. A listener says, you know, there's not much parking, in fact, zero parking at Horlack Park for Heritage Days. There's way more room in LRT access at Northland's. So, I mean, maybe there's an example, but I can't see Heritage Days going on at 30 degrees in the middle of July or August on pavement. Do they lay sod (laughs) at Northland's?
2: Maybe. Well, I mean, one of the pictures that they had, some fancy like drawings, had had people all lying on the grass. So it's funny because you're asking us the questions. It sounds like a weird festival. I know. Which and then normally I would know more <laughs> things about this, Ryan. But I, I'm only. Uh, it's funny because my, you know, I'm making my opinions based on what I've certainly read in the uh, read in the news and listened to. Um, so all I know is is that there was a picture that had people. Lying on grass Looking like they were Enjoying something I'm not sure what hmm.
0: Yeah I mean this <laughs> The, we, we're the talking International about
2: Grass Lying Festival It's <laughs> <laughs> a new thing We're bringing it To
0: Edmonton
1: it's but,
2: going to be Hey t- under but Justin
0: that. Trudeau We could have a few Grass festivals <laughs> in Edmonton You never know What but might happen But that does happen.
2: certainly Raise the question What do you do in the winter? Is it just a waste? ice-lying festival. <laughs> ice-lying <laughs> festival.
0: It might be more useful. I mean, if pavement isn't exactly as friendly in the summer, it might be more of a useful venue in the winter. A ton of people have chimed in on the parking. Uh, listeners said, uh, here, Robin, I'd like to know if they intend to charge for parking. Families won't be able to go there if that's the intention. Another says, converting the Coliseum to c- community rinks is an okay idea. But if you're taking your kids to hockey for two practices a week, plus a game, it's like 60 bucks and the community rinks don't charge. So, I mean, the revenue model is going to have to change here as well. Certainly. When we come back, I'm curious for your take, uh, whether you use, don't say now, cabs, Uber or other. And if that's changed over the last little while, more with Stephanie Coombs, Jana Pruden right after this. Stephanie Coombs, uh, Jana Pruden, our guests through this Friday roundtable table. We just lost a call. We had a call we were going to go to. Panasiak, you want to see if you can get that back really quickly? We've been talking about uh, Northlands, and uh, we'll see now I'm, in, now I'm in this like no man's land because I don't want to tee up a new topic. We've only got four minutes left, but we had a city councillor call into the show very eager to chime in on the debate. So we're looking to get Ward 5 councillor Michael Oshry back on the phone It's been interesting to see the take on the text line, some of the conversations that we've been having. uh, One listener here, EOF, says the Heritage Festival absolutely could work at Northlands. They could have it in Borden Park. You could park at Northlands, take the LRT. It says, you know, it doesn't really work the way it is right now. Another listener says uh, Disneyland has operated just fine at plus 30 with concrete and pavement. <laughs> I will take your point. The Disneyland model does seem to have worked. Yes. Ward 5 Councillor Michael Oshry calling into the show. Councillor, good morning. What prompted your call?
3: Well, I was just li- I was listening on your show, and uh, I'm on the board of Northland, and I thought maybe I could give you a bit of clarity on some of the issues we were talking about. Sure. We've got two minutes. Go ahead. Oh, so two minutes. Um, so the, the proposed festival site would be grass, and that would be where the Heritage Festival or any other festival could operate, and we could operate some winter festivals there as well. Um, so I thought that would be interesting. Uh, Northland says no interest in charging for parking on the Rexall Place um, redo with all the community rinks, that sort of thing. Um, so those And, and the, the festival site uh, for Heritage Festival, the Challenge with Heritage Festival has... Is they they were so successful they're actually outgrowing horlack park and so some of the conversations there are that they just need more space and obviously the lrt is a huge draw and if we had a huge grassy field with even some you know some some seating on one side that where the horse race areas or the track uh, i guess the bleachers um so i think that was that was why the heritage festival is interested and at the end of the day horse racing loses money it costs northland's money and it's a uh, it's the revenue is decreasing every year, and it's not going to be viable. And Northlands was trying to figure out what the best use of that land is, and and uh, um, horse racing is just not financially going to be viable any longer. And that's how they came up with the the need for revamping that area of the of the site. Uh,
0: uh, Councilor, what impact do you see this having, if any, on K days? If that's what we're calling it now?
3: Yeah, no K days. There's, there's no interest in moving K days, and so um, we could. We, Northlands is looking at. For sure, keeping K Days and 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 figuring these things all out as far as timing of other events, uh, but but K Days, you know, the midway would stay where it is on the on the asphalt side. But then maybe we could we could increase, you know, put the concert that K Days holds, which is a big draw on the the, the new proposed festival site. So it's, uh, you know, Northlands is just basically trying to generate visits to that area 365 days a year, and that's that's why this this plan is coming uh, the way it is, and uh, not perfect. Uh, we're still trying to figure out exactly what to do, but this is a starting point. And and we're going to listen to all the feedback and then make some decisions based on what uh, the citizens want.
0: All right, Councillor, thanks for the clarification and thanks for listening to the show. Love the show. Thanks, right. Appreciate it. That's Word 5 City Councillor Michael Oshry. So there you have it. Grass in the festival space, free parking for hockey. Nope.
2: I think it was free parking for hockey that probably just sold the city on it, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> like...
0: You might be right. But then, but then it enters the question, to what extent is Northline's expected to generate revenue?
2: Certainly, and I, I don't know the model of of community rinks people will talk about and
0: return on investment, right? Yep. And they'll, they'll want to know about that.
1: Clearly, what you were talking about before, there's a big puzzle market that needs to be exploited. So maybe Edmonton Puzzle Fest.
0: <laughs> the sky's the limit. Eileen Bell was talking about adult coloring books the other day.
2: Color Fest, yes.
0: I, before we run out of time,
2: fifty thousand people to color fest. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I would go. (laughs) Imagine the people you'd meet. You said you have a newsletter. Is it open to the public? Can people sign up for it? Absolutely. How do we get it?
1: uh, Find it on my uh, Twitter profile. You can just click the link and it'll happen.
0: Okay. It's magic. Thank you to the both of you for being here time has flown. We didn't even, I I think I give you five topics that we may consider and we got to two of them, but (laughs) it has been an engaging conversation and always great to catch up with the both of you. Stephanie Coombs, Jana Pruden, you can find them both on Twitter. Thank you for contributing to the conversation this week. It's been a lively week, a big week on the show, and that's all because of your participation. Make it a great weekend. We'll talk to you Monday morning. One love.